Let's ask the Lord's blessing. Dear Lord, we're very grateful. We'd ask you to be good to us this evening. Thank you for a beautiful day. The cooling temperatures, we're grateful for time in your word. In your son's name, amen. amen. Okay. As you know, we broke the book up into, arbitrarily, four sections or equivalent in length. There was the introduction, there was the preparation, there was the third woe, and this is the triumph. It's not, if you look, go back and look at your notes, not terribly artificial. Uh, it was mostly done that way because that's what fed on the sheet for a particular week. So I had to title it things that it made sense with, but I think it, it holds. We, we, we got through essentially the third woe, essentially, last week. Um, the triumph of the prophecy is the destruction of the Whore of Babylon, which we cover this evening. We then have the millennium, the defeat of the beast and the false prophet. The millennium, that's going to be on the, that's going to be on the recording, I'm sure. It's engraved in my memory. Um, we get to look at the defeat of the beast and the false prophet. We get to look at the um, locking the devil up for a thousand years, millennium. We get to the, the great white throne of judgment and the New Jerusalem. So we'll cover a few things tonight. But as you know, we've approached this with the mentality that the book should define in its clearest passages what you're dealing with, not in its weirdest passages. You don't take the weird ones, try to invent something that'll fit, because you got good imaginations, you could come up with something that, back when I was growing up, Hal Lindsey had come out with late great planet Earth, and of course he saw all the the armies like locusts as Russian helicopters, okay? Once you say it, it's hard to get people out of people's mind, but it was just a supposition, and it didn't say that they were Russian helicopters in the book of Revelation. So we had to go, we have to look at what it does say clearly, anchor ourselves there, and if we can't figure some things out, we can't figure it out, God bless us, but you'll be closer to what is true if you take the clear passages first, and move to the unclear and say, well, it must be something in this range. It'll keep you narrowed down, because people have had end-times views. And we're beginning to realize that the book of Revelation, at least I, I'm saying that the we of majesty, it's not, I don't presume on your interests, but that the book of Revelation isn't about the end of the world, in any way, at any point, at any time. And we're going to get to the end of the book tonight, and you could disagree, that's fine. Um, because the clear thing in the book that we read at the very first week is how soon he said it would take place. Okay? Now we know John is having the vision in the reign of Vespasian Caesar. That's my preference. Because he is, that's uh, right here, Vespasian. These are the first century Caesars. Augustus, Tiberius, Gaius, Claudius, Nero, Galba, Otho, Vitellius. This is the year of the four emperors. You know, they only lasted a few months each after Nero. Vespasian came out on top. He's the guy that built the Colosseum. Um, his son Titus and then his other son Domitian. That ends up the first century. Nerva comes in at the last couple years of the first century, but um, you can include him if you want. But he tells you in the book, in a clear passage, that the seven heads of the beast are seven kings. And 
five of whom were, one is, and one is yet to come. And then the second beast is an eighth, right? So we went one, two, three, four, five. I choose to have Vespasian be six, because I don't consider these guys really functioning as emperors. Titus, seven. And so the writing would be during Vespasian's life, and probably late, um, um, right after Vespasian becomes Caesar. And uh, his son Titus is busy destroying Jerusalem, which is what the book is about. So he's explaining, the, the point of the book is to take Christians in Asia Minor, who've got their own issues, but prepare them for the end of Jerusalem. Um, and that this is a, even if you differ with me, you can't differ by far. You've got to either say, okay, it's either Galba, he would be sixth, or it's Vespasian. Okay? You can't count from a different emperor than Augustus. He's the first emperor. So, seven kings, the sixth one is the writing. So we know that the book has an anchor point in approximately late 60s AD. Um, the city of Jerusalem falls in 70 AD to the Romans. And, um, um, and that's where we're sort of picking it up. Now, at the end of the, the third woe, this warning about the whore of Babylon, and he introduces the whore, and, and the uh, that she sits on the beast, and then the beast wages war on the whore, um, and we're we're basically saying that the seven heads of the beast are the seven first emperors of the Julio-Flavian dynasties of Rome, the Roman Empire, and that the whore is Jerusalem. Some people say the whore is Babylon. We will we covered a bit of that last week, but this week um, it makes it clear that it's not um, Rome itself, because then Rome goes to war and destroys the whore. So what happens in the first big section here, the first two columns, it's the the song of victory over the fall of the of Babylon. Okay. Now, it's not the Mesopotamian Babylon. Babylon is being used as a symbol. But he's using the same kind of language that Isaiah used against the real Babylon. Um, you'll, over on the left, right-hand side, and some reason I left the eye off of Isaiah there, my, my mistake. I don't know where it went. And Babylon, the glory of kingdoms, the splendor and pride of the Chaldeans, will be like Sodom and Gomorrah when God overthrew them. It will never be inhabited or dwelt in for all generations. No Arab will pitch his tent there. No shepherds will make their flocks lie down there, but wild beasts will lie down there. And its houses will be full of howling creatures. Their ostriches will dwell and their satyrs will dance. Hyenas will cry in its towers, jackals in its pleasant palaces. Its time is close at hand and its days will not be prolonged. Well, that's Isaiah about the real Babylon. When the fall of Babylon in the vision comes across, chapter 18, in the left-hand column, this angel cries out, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. It has become a dwelling place of demons, a haunt of every foul spirit, a haunt of every foul and hateful bird. For all nations have drunk the wine of her impure passion, and the kings of the earth have committed fornication with her, and the merchants of the earth have grown rich with the wealth of her wantonness. So basically the same um, kind of uh, 
uh, inflamed polemic against a city being applied to whatever city Babylon the whore is representing. Now he then says in verse 4, another voice from heaven, Come out from her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. Now, Jesus had warned of that back in Matthew 24, right-hand side, second passage. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house. And let him who is in the field not turn back to take his mantle. Alas, for those who are with child and for those who give suck in those days. Pray that your flight may not be in winter or in a, on a Sabbath. For then there will be a great tribulation, such as not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. And if those days had not been shortened, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be shortened. That's Christ's Olivet Discourse at the end of Matthew. The Christian church in the first century, when the siege was going to begin by Rome against Jerusalem, the prophets in Jerusalem, the Christian prophets, and Eusebius records this, uh, the next passage down. This is Eusebius is 300s, mid-300s, uh, first Christian history. Um, but the people of the church in Jerusalem had been commanded by a revelation, vouchsafed to approved men there before the war, to leave the city and to dwell in a certain town of Pyrea called Pella. And when those that believed in Christ had come thither from Jerusalem, then as if the royal city of the Jews and the whole land of Judea were entirely destitute of holy men, the judgment of God at length overtook those who had committed such outrages against Christ and his apostles and totally destroyed that generation of impious men. So basically, you have the, the necessity that this be happening sometime in the middle of first century, this vision, about the greatest event that happened to the Judeo-Christian history, which is the fall of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple. And we also looked at last week how it was for the punishment of killing the righteous. The Jews had killed the righteous for centuries, wherever prophet was sent to them. You have that passage somewhere on the side there, uh, down in Matthew uh, 23. I read this last week, Matthew 23. Um, Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, some you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, that upon you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of innocent Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. I don't know if you really realize how many of these symbols are out of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah's book. Thus I say, truly I say to you, all this will come upon this generation. So Christ tells the Jews he's talking to, I'm going to hold you guilty, this generation, for everybody killed that was righteous from the beginning of time. He goes from the beginning of the creation, Cain killing Abel, down to the end of the Old Testament, Zechariah, the son of Berechiah. And those were the people that were those were the people that were crying out for vengeance from under the altar in week one. Remember in the introduction? They were saying, hey, when are you going to avenge our blood? And God says, well, there's going to be more of you, more of you killed. But this is the story of God taking the vengeance and what he did in the heavens and what he did in history to achieve that. So, 
what happens is he's calling his people out of Babylon and this great destruction falls on her uh, where it says um, verse 8 so shall her plagues come in a single day pestilence and mourning and famine and she shall be burned with fire for mighty is the Lord God who judges her and then the next section is an interesting setup because like you have the seven trumpets and the seven seals and the seven bowls and seven thunders here you have uh, uh, juxtapose alasses or woe and uh, hallelujahs the first is a list of of, of alasses you know, the, the kings of the earth verse 9 they cry out in verse 10 alas alas thou great city thou mighty city Babylon in one hour has thy judgment come verse 11 and the merchants of the earth then it talks about all their wares and they cry out in verse 16 alas alas for the great city was clothed in fine linen and in purple and scarlet and then in verse 17 it says and all shipmasters and seafaring men they cry out in verse 19 alas alas for the great city now that's how the world responds to, to the fall of this great metropolitan uh, area uh, Jerusalem was one of the great ancient cities it was not a holy city it was not a it was just like any it was like New York it was like LA um, filled with ungodly people and they were busy persecuting the Christian church um, there is a shift as you can probably figure out I'm not dispensationalist I'm I don't believe that we're suddenly going to get the, the Dome of the Rock back and rebuild the temple because all of that is the, the reason God destroyed it all was because that age was past. There is no temple other than the saints for the Christian church. There is no, um, even there is no city. We get to a new city, but we'll see what that means. So basically you have these, this world going kings, uh, merchants, seafarers are going wow what a drag and saw the smoke of her coming up from this great collapse of this great ancient city but then verse 20 rejoice over her O heaven O saints and apostles and prophets for God has given judgment for you against her remember this is payback for the righteous when it tells us in Romans to not avenge ourselves it's not because vengeance will not be taken when Christians are told to take it patiently, it's because God will avenge. And God will do it justly. If, I, if someone decides to punch me in the nose because I'm a Christian, and I say, oh, you know, turnabout's fair play, and I, I try to equitably or justly measure out the appropriate punch back, I'm not going to do it right. They're going to certainly think I didn't do it right. Then they'll beat me up. God says, take it patiently. God says, let it go. Not because we're like professional wusses, but because God is just and he wants his righteousness to be served justly. And he, is, he waited until this point. Hundreds of years he waited. You think of the prophets of the Old Testament who died because of their righteousness. And he waited until the Christ. Then they killed the Christ. 
You know, when he was coming up to Jerusalem, that was the end of his ministry in Matthew 23. He says, I would, how I would have gathered you, your children together as a hen gathers her brood under your wings, her wings, and you would not. Behold, your house is forsaken and desolate. That's how Jesus is viewing Jerusalem, the city where he made his name to dwell, the city that he came to serve. And he, they were going to kill him. And then within a generation, he was going to destroy that city and take vengeance on the ungodly. And in history, it happened. It didn't just happen in the heavenlies. So the Christians take over, or the righteous take over, in their response. It was alas, alas. Um, and then a mighty angel picks up this millstone and throws it into the sea. That made me think of that passage about causing little ones to sin. It would be better if a millstone were tied around your neck and you were thrown into the sea. I don't know just if that was an, appro an appropriate judgment. Um, uh, why he? What, it doesn't say what ha what happens when he throws the millstone into the sea. It's a big rock thrown into the into the sea. Might be symbol. You can look at that in your own time about whether or not it ties in with uh, causing his little ones to sin. But you'll, you'll notice at the end of that paragraph in verse 24, second column, and in her was found the blood of prophets and of saints and all who've been slain on earth. And Jesus said, may come upon you all the righteous blood shed on earth. So we know that Christ's prophecy 40 years earlier is what John was seeing about to transpire and he assigns it to the whore of Babylon. So I want to make it as difficult for you, whatever your eschatology, and you can have a different one than I, I don't have much of one, but um, I want to make it difficult for you. I want you to have, well, I gotta have it be during the reign of the sixth emperor, dang it, and I gotta have it be Jerusalem, dang it. Okay, if you're stuck there, I, I don't care if you do anything more. Okay, the book is about the judgment of the whore of Babylon. He even goes back in time before his own day, and he had the first two woes that were before Jesus, before John, before other things happened, Apollyon and the four horsemen. And then he gets down to business on the third woe, and that's the time he's living in. Okay? The time he's living in is the third woe. And we're at the end of that, where the, where the heavens are going, ah, oh, man, that's too bad. And the other guys are going, hallelujah. And hallelujah, by the way, if you probably know this, means praise God. Uh, praise God, and it's repeated four times. Uh, verse 1 of chapter 19, verse 3, verse 4, verse 6, I think. Four, four hallelujahs. Three alas, alasses. And I, I would encourage you to think the way the writer of the scripture and the people and the agents in the heavens who are faithful to God think. Sometimes we see the, the devastation that a siege of an ancient city and the, the death that goes on. If you read Josephus on the fall of Jerusalem, um, it's, it's, it's gory. It's, it's very, they try to sneak out of the city. Close to a million died in this battle. A million. One battle. I mean, not one day, but the siege, which lasts about three years. A million people. I think Tacitus has it at 600,000 or 700,000 people. So the Romans said upper, close to a million, and Josephus said a million. 
that's a lot of people to die, and mostly Jews. They try to they'd eat their gold, they'd try to sneak out of the city, the Romans would capture them, gut them, because they knew they'd swallowed their gold. So they just pick the gold pieces out of their intestines and move on. They crucified thousands around the city. There was and when when Jesus says of the temple when he's showing the disciples, or his disciples are kind of thrilled by the sightseeing they're on, and he says, Not one stone will be left upon another. There wasn't. Uh, Titus went to some trouble about having a, a corner tower uh, remain because he wanted to prove to the rest of the nations that there had been a city there once. They leveled it to the ground. So if you go to the Holy Land and you go to the city, nothing you see there, nothing is from the time of Jesus. No part of the wall. No part of the, you get, oh, this is the upper room. No, none of it. All of it is medieval. It's from either the Ottoman Empire or from the uh, Crusader states. But thousand years after Jesus. So be careful. They will, they will take you to the cleaners. Um, they also put fake, they put new rocks in the stream where David got his five smooth stones because tourists like to get five smooth stones out of the creek that David used. Where are we? What verse? Seven. Oh, yeah, at the end of the Hallelujahs, and the, uh, this, this voice is coming to him saying, um, the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. This is the introduction. It's a great juxtaposition, I think, in... in um, in this book, you have the whore of Babylon, the, the sins of the Jews, we looked at last week, carried off to Shinar by the two women with storks' wings, which is your argument for angel women, women angels. doesn't call them angels, but it calls them women, and they have stork wings, and they fly the woman of wickedness to Babylon. Um, she is being destroyed. And the New Jerusalem, the bride of Christ, is being lowered from heaven. That's a couple chapters later. It's a nice juxtaposition. It's kind of like Satan and Christ. You know, Satan comes down to earth as the accuser, and Christ comes down as the advocate. He defends us in his mercy, and Satan accuses us. Here, one city, one great city, is physical city, is destroyed for its immorality, and then a heavenly city, not a physical city, is, is introduced as the Jerusalem God intended, the people of God, the bride of Christ. And both kind of, you know, they're both women. What's interesting, after this, this angel in verse 9, chapter 19, verse 9, tells him to write down about being invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. These are the true words of God, he says. Then I fell down, verse 10, at his feet to worship him. And he said to me, you must not do that. That's one of those great natural moments, you know, like turning around or, or it was quiet for about half an hour. Or you know, He bows down to worship. The guy's been through quite a bit already in this vision. All sorts of gangbuster creatures and angels and strong things and thunders and 
and he's been told to write this down in the day of the bride of Christ and the, the lamb has come and he wants to worship the angel. Um, and he said, nah, don't do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brethren who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. Then, says, then he says something interesting. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Okay, what are we going to do with that? But the, it makes sense when we say those who um, hold the testimony of Jesus. And then he defines it saying the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. At minimum, people who hold the gospel of Jesus Christ and believe the gospel of Jesus Christ are the, is this the centerpiece of what Christ came to do on earth in his first coming? And this is his second coming at the end of the first century. And those who hold the testimony of Jesus, your, your faith is in Christ, that's what it seems to be claiming. It says, uh, this is, um, we're fellow servants, those who hold the testimony of Jesus, and the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Consider that the spirit of this work is a little less of the weirdness and a little bit more of holding fast to the head. A little bit more, like this angel just said, don't do that. You, you're going to bow down to me, don't do that. Because everything in our faith is Christ or Christocentric. We are pointing ourselves back to Christ and his gospel. And then the heavens are opened and Christ shows up. Okay? It doesn't say there in verse 11, and Jesus shows up. It says, the one who sat on a white horse, he's called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name inscribed, which no one knows but himself. He is clad in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. Any questions? It's Jesus Christ. Now, you know, John is the one, we, we, we see that with John's same guy, the Apostle, first chapter. first verse, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. It goes through the whole first chapter of Gospel of John, identifying Jesus first as the Word, and then as um, Jesus. Now, it also, what's interesting here is he, he has, uh, verse 15, from his mouth issues a sharp sword with which to smite the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. Remember that early in the book when the, the baby that was this dragon was trying to kill was going to rule the nations with a rod of iron? This is identifying that as Jesus Christ, at least um, a reasonable, reasonable argument for that. Um, but the, the mouth that issues a sharp sword, and then when you read in Hebrews, where's Hebrews? Anybody know where Hebrews is? It before I have the reference. Hebrews four. It's always intrigued me because of the way it was worded. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, 
piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And before him, no creature is hidden. So we, we have the judgment of Jesus Christ, which is imminent in this situation. Him possibly called the word of God and tied in with sharper than any two-edged sword. And this character has a sword coming out of his mouth. I can't, the, the, the biology of that I can't work with, but, but that's the image. And also t it ties him in with the wine press of the fury of the wrath of God, which we got last week when the wine press was reaped and the blood ran out of the wine press, you know, four feet deep. And then, verse 17, top of the third column, it's an invitation. You, you know, you get those Evites. Um, have you seen that, that uh, Christmas card by this family where they have this verse from an imprecatory psalm across the top? Something like, maybe dash your little one's heads against the stone. Something like that, you know, just awful verse. You almost want to put an Evite out with this. Uh, Come, gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. It's a great invitation. It's just basically saying, this is going to be a battle um, royale, I think they call it. A lot of people are going to die. And the birds are going to get the best part of this. That's something... That is uh, echoed in, I think, Ezekiel. I think I have the reference somewhere. I don't have the, the passage written out. What chapter is that? That's still chapter 19. 39, 17 to 28. Oh, yeah. As for you, this is Ezekiel 39. As for you, son of man, thus says the Lord God, speak to the birds of every sort and all beasts of the field. Assemble and come, gather from all sides to the sacrificial feast which I am preparing for you. A great sacrificial feast upon the mountains of Israel, and you shall eat flesh and drink blood. It goes on. This is an image that God uses. This is a description, very poetic, of the nature of things. You even have it in Christ. A lot of people think it's the rapture, but it's the passage in Mark. I have it somewhere. Uh, not here. Where is it? Um, it's 41. It's on the middle of the side, right side. No, that's the millstone one. I, I typed it in there and I'm trying to. Oh, it's in Luke 17. I have it written down but not typed out. Whoever seeks to gain his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life will preserve it. I tell you, in that night, there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken, the other left. A lot of people think it's the rapture. They said to him, where, Lord? And he said, where the body is, there the eagles will be gathered together. It's like a western. And John Wayne looks up in the sky and he sees vultures circling over there and they know there's a dead body under it. It's not some exalted, elevated sense. Because you'll see in your footnotes, it says, or vultures, instead of translating it eagles. Eagles are just vultures that look better. Um, so this image is one that God's judgment, when it comes home and we take this in hand, that we are people who should be singing hallelujah, 
with the fall of Jerusalem. You should be thinking hallelujah when great cities who were wicked before God were destroyed because this is God bringing about what people deserve. Um, so, where are we? Oh, eat the flesh of kings, yeah. Well, right after that, right after that, this is a wrap-up. Remember, the third woe, it had the, the beast of the false prophet. Remember, the beast is the, the seven kings. The second beast, or the false prophet, is an eighth, which I think is the mission. Okay? Again, work it out for yourself. This is their judgment. This is at the end of the big battle royale. The beast was captured, verse 20, and with it the false prophet, who in its present had worked the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast, and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. The rest were slain by the sword of him who sits upon the horse, the sword that issues from his mouth, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. So he wraps up that whole scene. I'm sitting on a horse, I got a sword coming in my mouth, and I'm going to invite the birds to come eat all the dead bodies, and then I'm going to grab the bad guy, the bad images, the two beasts, throw them alive into the lake of fire, and then I'm going to kill everybody else with a sword coming out of my mouth. You can work with the images as you will, but you know some of your characters. You know that the word of God is Jesus Christ. You know that it's happening at the time of the first century, and you know that it is um, the Roman Empire in some way that's being cast into the lake of fire. Whether the birds are real birds, I'll give that, leave that up to you. But at this point, it gets, you say, is any part of the book of Revelation future? All right? Because up to this point, John is talking about his time and immediately thereafter. Okay? So the first two woes have passed for John. The third woe is about to happen, and he's preparing the Christians for it. But then you say, does it go any, is there any reason to think the future is? Yeah, it's next, next few verses. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key of the bottomless pit, and a great chain. <laughs> and he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. Well, you. You can't have a thousand years added to the story without getting into the future a bit. Okay? Now, because the thousand years is either a literal thousand years or it is a symbolic thousand years. If it's a symbolic thousand years, it's a lot less than a, a lot more than a thousand years. Symbols are always smaller than the thing they symbolize, or there would be no economy to using them. Okay? Uh, so you symbolize a great amount of time by calling it a thousand years. And um, he's locked the devil into the bottomless pit. Remember the abyss? Abyss is ground. Abyss is no ground. That's what this is, the abyss. So that he would deceive the nations no more. This is not Satan's final comeuppance. This is him just, this is something else than what the beast and the false prophet got. They got the lake of fire. He got the bottomless pit. And he only got it for a thousand years. And it says, till the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be loosed for a little while. So remember that whatever you do with the thousand years, Satan is in it for that length of time. So if you have the death of Domitian as your 
at least your beginning point is for this death right here. The death of Domitian is your beginning point because the next bit is the bottomless pit. Whatever you do, symbolic length of time, 10,000 years, a million years, I don't know, or literal, 1,000 years, Satan is in that pit and kept from deceiving the nations for that time. Now, no matter what view you, whatever legitimate view you hold of Revelation, it means that at least most of the Middle Ages, Satan was locked in the bottomless pit, if you take a literal thousand. If you take a symbol, Satan is still locked in the bottomless pit. You don't have a choice. It's the first century, folks. We told you which king it was under. Okay, you, you have to accept the clear. I, I think it's this, you might think it's uh, someone else, Nero or whatever you work out to be. But you're looking at this and going, I want to be sure of what I'm saying. And I don't have to speak to everything. I, just, I don't know what that means. I don't know what that symbol is. All I know is it told me what reign I was under when the, when the vision was had. So, Satan gets thrown to the bottom of the pit, keeps him from doing You say, but how do people, I, from what I hear, people were evil in the Middle Ages. Yes, they were, very evil. How are people evil with Satan in the bottomless pit? Well, he says he was kept from deceiving the nations. Satan is not your personal tempter. He's not this omnipresent guy with a bottle of vodka running around trying to get people drunk. You are tempted, it says in the scripture, when you're lured and enticed by your own desires. Your best friend can entice you. Your spouse can entice you. Your church can entice you. Your own urges can entice you. You got all sorts of ways of getting tempted. We don't need the help. And Satan was there as one of the great princes. He's not your Idaho tempter, okay? So man sins of his own capabilities, all right? Man can sin just fine. Um, whatever the case, we gotta make sense out of this thousand years though. He's gonna be loosed at the end of it but just for a little while. Remember, we're sticklers about those guides. It says the time of this vision is soon. We got through the end of the third woe and we figured out, okay, it's gotta be around the fall of Jerusalem. And then we jump into the distant future for John, either literal or symbolic. And then Satan's gonna get let out again. And then we'll have to deal with that in a minute. So what happens in this section is remember the martyrs were, were crying out for God to avenge them. Well, now all of those in the vision are accounted for, basically. And they came to life, verse 4, and reigned with Christ a thousand years. So during that thousand years, Christ reigns, Satan's in the bottomless pit, Christ reigns, and all of the martyrs are raised to reign with him. But it, just the martyrs. So if you were like a decent Christian, let's have it be the gals. Say, say you're a decent Christian gal, I'll give you a date, 450 AD, went to church regularly, loved Jesus, caught bad pneumonia and died. You would not be raised in this resurrection. Well, because it would, that would have been late. Say you're first century. Say you're Mary, the mother of Jesus. 
and she didn't get killed for the faith, as far as we know. She wouldn't be raised. It tells us that. They came to life. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. It defines that. It says, at the time this is happening, when Satan is thrown to the bottomless pit, the martyrs up to that point are raised and reign with Christ for that thousand, and they are honored for their faithfulness unto death. The rest of us who died of pneumonia, or a car accident, or something else, don't. Blessed and holy is he who shares of the first resurrection. Over, the, over such, the second death has no power. But they shall be priests of God in Christ, and they shall reign with him a thousand years. Okay, so that's the nature of the thousand years. People do all sorts of things with the millennium. If you hear the millennium, that's, the, that's what they're talking about. That thousand years. When the thousand years are ended, Satan will be loosed from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations which are at the four corners of the earth, that is Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. Okay, now we're at the end of either the symbolic length of time or the literal length of time. If it's a symbolic length of time, we have no idea what the length of time will be. Okay? Except that it's going to be quite a bit longer than the symbol used. So it's not going to be a, a thousand and seven years. As symbolized by a thousand years. It's going to be 10,000 years symbolized by a thousand years. It's going to be, a thousand years means a long time, so make it a long time. So we, if your view is that it's symbolic, you're going to have a hard time doing much more with the when of the rest of the vision. I take a literal view um, because, uh, I don't know, I'll show you like this and make, it, make more sense out of it. So we have Caesar Domitian, who is my character for the second beast, the earth beast, the 666, that guy. Persecuted the church, nut job, uh, murdered because he was that bad. Um, as I said, he, his death is in 96 AD, September. 96 AD. Not that that matters. Um, and so basically, if it's a literal period of time, thousand years from then, you should find something that fulfills the vision as it is described. Now, I was, this is 40 years ago, maybe 30 years ago. I was going through this and figuring this out, working on it. And I was telling my older brother that I had worked out that Domitian was the best case, I thought, for the second beast. And he said, uh, when did he die? Because he knew that the end of the beast and the false prophet was right before Satan is locked in the bottomless pit. Okay? So if you say, if, if he is the, the false prophet, his death would be the only outside thing we could look at that says um, beginning of the bottomless pit thousand years, okay? We'll put abyss there. And so a little arrow that looks bottomless at that point. Um, I said, I don't know. I'll go look it up. And I looked it up, and it, 
it, it was hard for me because it was so it was so obvious. I shouldn't have had to look it up, but there it was. Um, I came back to my brother pretty excited because um, it says here that he's loosed, gathers his armies, verse nine, and they marched up over the broad earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. So. What basically has to happen is the, the armies of the world have to gather together and be led, I assume, on Jerusalem. Which has been rebuilt. By this point, yeah, it's uh, a Roman, late Roman, now uh, Islamic town before the, this. But um, the thing that happens at a thousand years plus 96 is. 1096. 1096 in, this is September, in August of 1096, something happened called the First Crusade. Where the armies of Europe and the armies of Islam met at Jerusalem and fought over it for three, four years. And just call me old-fashioned, but when you're given a choice between a symbolic thousand years and a literal thousand years, and the one thing that can prove that it's a literal thousand years is something that fulfills the description, as small as it is, that the armies of the world would gather on the beloved city, um, happened almost within weeks of a thousand years, August to September. I, I get a little choked up. You know how I am about apocalypses. But that's just my view, okay? That's just, I hold that it's a literal thousand years. It's in a, remember how I said in the first week that one of the things you do with prophecy is you glorify God with the things that have been fulfilled. Things that haven't been fulfilled, you just hope in God, okay? Don't try to come up with a story where you think it might be fulfilled or how it could be fulfilled or someday it will be fulfilled this way. You don't know that, just hope in God. But when you have something like this, I know John the Apostle had no control over this. He's dead, long dead, back at the time of Domitian. And he was able to tell you that in a thousand years, when Satan is released from the bottomless pit, you say, what was Gog and Magog? Okay, Magog is one of the sons of Japheth in the Table of Nations in Genesis 11, and 10, excuse me. Um, and then is used as a symbol in Ezekiel for the enemies of God in a generic sense out of Central Asia, Central steppe, steppe peoples. Like a lot of people think they were the Scythians, but they were descendants of Japheth, and they were either Asia Minor. Uh, there's a lot of evidence that they may have been the Goths or the Scandinavians in many ways, the German Scandinavians, and that's one theory. And then. Um, Chimerians, Cappadocians, whatever. In other words, nobody really does. But there's their northern peoples, uh, Gog and Magog, and symbolic of the armies against God from the pagan world. Now, the devil, verse 10, who would deceive them was thrown into the lake of fire. Now, I don't know what your Satanology is, and I know it's good to have a personal Satan. Uh, who tempts you personally with that bottle of vodka. 
I know that it's nice and we all believe and I like some Zoroastrian that having a moral dualism God and anti-God is really kind of feels good balanced um, Satan's not that guy Satan came on late fell from heaven late Old Testament times rebelled you know fought against God and was sort of like the, the bottom was fit for a thousand years he's got a very short career okay he does nothing for a thousand years and just for a few hundred years prior uh, in terms of being thrown down from heaven and then afterwards for a little while he is grabbed he's thrown to the lake of fire in my view Satan was dealt with in the let's say say end of his history 1100 AD not that there aren't other malevolent spirits that are against God but Satan as a, as a dude I think he's done for um, where the beast and the false prophet were and they'll be tormented day and night forever and ever then it comes to the great white throne of judgment now this comes from it took me probably decades to read this correctly then I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it from his presence earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Also another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, by what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead in them, and all were judged by what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death of the lake of fire. This is hell. You want it. This is an image. Might be a metaphor. It's an image of hell. Um, but it took me a long time, because you're reading about everybody being judged and books of works and books of the book of life, and you know that plays real heavily throughout the Bible, and, and you, go, you, go, you like that. And you just, it took me, like I said, decades to realize it's only talking about the dead. The living aren't mentioned. He repeats it. I saw the dead. And the dead were judged, the dead in it, the dead in them, by what they had done. This is the second death, the lake of fire. It was the judgment of the dead. This is the second resurrection as well as the second death. Because the first resurrection was back when Satan got thrown to the lake in the bottomless pit. The martyrs were raised to reign with Christ for the thousand years. That's the first resurrection. At this point, all the dead are called up. And those who are found written in the book of life are not destroyed in the lake of fire. And those that were not are. It's a second resurrection and a second death. First death being dying of whatever caused you to die. Now this is, you said, okay, Evan, okay, you, you, you squeaked past that jump into the future. That thousand years, yes, the first crusades, darn it. I'm giving you another chance to catapult this into the future because he says in chapter 21 and I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth passed away it doesn't tell you when the first heaven and the first earth passed away in this story it just said for it had and here's a new one so if you're looking for a gap to put something in like thousands of years that might be a good place I don't know if it does you any good I don't mind if you do it um, because it sort of the story doesn't really clip along it just clips along textually not actually because you don't have you have 
coming out of the Old Testament, picking up with the war between Michael and the devil. That comes through the first two woes. Then you have the third woe in the first century. Then you have the bottomless pit and the reign of the martyrs. And then you have the judgment and the, the, the destruction of Satan in, in 1100 AD. And then what happened? Well, we don't know. There's a gap. I, I think it's in the symbol, the visionary world he's in, he's dealing with a new heaven and a new earth because the old one had passed away in the vision, whatever that means. You can disagree with me, not a problem. But he saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling of God is with men. It's a, that's a big shift. Temples, God dwelt in the gods. All the, Temples mean houses of the God. So the temple in Jerusalem was a house where the presence of God dwelt in where he says of Jerusalem, where he made his name to dwell. God is dwelling with men in a different way in this new Jerusalem. There's all these promises of wiping away every tear, um, behold, making all things new. And all that would play into a view of the, this pushing further into some utopian end. Um, and he gives a this promise of the water of life, the fountain of the water of life without payment. Um, he who conquers, verse 7, shall have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. But as for the cowardly and faithless, that's pointing at the conquering part. Remember the conquering in earlier in the book had to do with becoming a martyr, overcoming and conquering, and he who conquers, I will give. It's being able to stand up and not be cowardly and not be faithless. He then lists other sins, polluted, murderers, fornicators, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars. But he starts it with the cowardly and the faithless. Then one of the seven angels, who had the seven bowls of the seven last plagues, spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. This is helpful. Angels are always good to know at this moment, where you're looking for clarity, a thumbtack to put in the vision and say, I know what that means. The new Jerusalem lowered from heaven, just like we could say the whore of Babylon, the woman of wickedness, seated on the beast, is ancient Jerusalem. We can say what of the new Jerusalem? I will show you the bride of the land. And he showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. So this is the new Jerusalem that is replacing what was the old system. The old covenant, which is ended in 70 AD, and then with, you might say, an interregnum, not interregnum, the reign of Christ and the martyrs for that thousand years, wrap up Satan, and then the, then the new Jerusalem comes down from heaven as the bride of Christ. Now, you know the passages that tell you the church is the bride of Christ. Uh, Ephesians 5. Describes it in detail. Gates made out of a single pearl, really big. The, the, the gates were all named for the 12 tribes, and the foundations were the 12 apostles. And we're told that we're built on the foundation of the apostle as a church. It's a, it's a beautiful image, but not one you're supposed to expect to see because this has been told you by an angel 
that is talking about something that doesn't have pearly gates. I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. That's verse 22. By its light, verse 24, shall the nations walk, and the kings of the earth shall bring their glory into it. And the gates shall never be shut by day, and there shall be no night there. They shall bring into it the glory and honor of the nations, but nothing unclean shall enter it, nor anyone who practices abomination or falsehood, but only those who are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. So the judgment that happened, that took everybody written in the books of works, threw them in the lake of fire, all the dead, the only ones who are allowed into the, the city, the Bride of Christ, is if your name is in, in the Lamb's Book of Life, and you're holy. It's not the institution of the church. Because once you have an institution, you have every pathway but Sunday of getting ungodly people into it. Mom and Dad always want to baptize their kids. Little Johnny can be a member so that they can feel that he's a Christian. The real bride of Christ, only those written in the Lamb's Book of Life, nothing unclean, no one who's ab abominable or false, because this thing is structured not just to be beautiful, but to be generating, it says the chapter 22, verse 2, the tree of life on the river that comes out of the, t uh, the city, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. Remember that tree of life in the temptation that when they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and God says, we got to kick them out because they get, if they get to the tree of life, they'll live forever. Well, now we're told at the other end of the Bible that the tree of life has 12 kinds of fruit and it bears a different fruit every season, every month, during the year. Now, at this point, the angels and Christ are wrapping up the book Ten within a few paragraphs. And the time is almost up. It says, and I, I, I bolded that phrase, his servant shall worship him, speaking of, of the Lamb. They shall see his face, his name shall be on their foreheads. Central to this book is not angelic worship. Central to this book is not visionary worship. You should not, as it says in Colossians, base your face, faith on visions, the worship of angels, and not holding fast to the head. All of this is the story of the work of Christ at the pinnacle of this economy of great angelic power and the angels going, oh no, don't worship me. You worship God. That's what this book deals with. And we, as his people, who bear the testimony of Jesus, have seen him and worship him. And these words are trustworthy, verse 6. six. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. That was, we read that first week to let you know that it bracketed this idea. This is soon, this is near, this is next. Don't seal up the words of this prophecy. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, am he who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, 
I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me, and he said to me, you must not do that. That happened twice tonight, right? Don't, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brethren the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book, worship God. That, especially when you, how many people have gotten off track in their Christian life because of this book and ignoring pretty much the spiritual admonition of what you should be about in it? This is the glory of Christ avenging his people on the city that was made to bear his name for centuries, replacing it with his church, his bride. The whore replaced with the bride. Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. This is an interesting verse. Let the evildoer still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. What do you do with that? I mean, is that something we should be aware that even at that time, with the, the end of the age, and the ages coming on them, and they say, hey look, this is, the righteousness and wickedness is not, we're not here to stop wickedness of the world. The church is not here to stop wickedness. We're to preach the gospel and get people forgiven of their wickedness. You can get forgiven, and the non-Christians will still be filthy, and most of the world will still be filthy. That's not what we're about. Behold, I am coming soon, verse 12, bringing my recompense to repay everyone for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robe, robes, that they may have the right to enter to the tree of life, and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside. Now this is, this is the end of the book. Remember I, I let you, you couldn't quite have the thousand years. I'll let you, I mean if you insist, you can have the thousand years as a symbolic period of time. But you maybe took the new heavens and new earth and said, okay, it's going to be about 20,000 years into the future. Got that? I said, great, fine. But what good does it do you when you get to that point? It's no different than if you didn't. Because you have this city that is the bride of Christ that is made of all the people that believe in the Christ. And it's a spiritual thing, not a physical thing. And the wicked are still being wicked. And then he says, um, outside, outside the city, the New Jerusalem, are the dogs and the sorcerers and fornicators and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. The wicked are still in the world that you're picturing in the last chapter of the book of Revelation. That, that New Jerusalem lower down from heaven, which is about 1,400 miles cubed, uh, interesting visionary thing. That end is just an image of the righteousness that real believers have written in the Lamb's Book of Life, but they still are in a world that is surrounded outside that city. Those that don't believe are still all these fornicators and liars and murderers. They're still in the world. Nobody Remember the, the, the living weren't judged? Only the dead were judged back in the Great White Throne? Jesus, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to you with this testimony for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and morning star. 
the spirit of the bride say come and let him who hears say come now that's that's to you perhaps the spirit the bride say come and if you're hearing the words of this prophecy you want people to come to the same thing this is about the work of God in Christ this is not the thrill of a Nicolas Cage or a Kurt Cameron movie about the end of the world if those are thrilling I never saw them let him who is thirsty come let him who desires take the water of life without price it's great gospel messaging it says you desire this you can come and take it I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book if anyone adds to them God will add to him the plagues described in this book. It's a nice little curse at the end. Curses on you if you are to add anything to this book. That's maybe why I'm a little nervous of doing anything more and saying anything more about a vision or an image I don't know what it means if I try to impose new words to it, explain my way through Revelation. I would be asking for the plagues of the book. And anyone who takes away from the words of the book of the prophecy God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all the saints. Amen. So there. Let's thank God. Dear Lord, we're grateful for these four weeks. We're grateful for your word, the vision you gave to John. He witnessed some things that are amazing, and we don't know what most of them are. But thank you for the guidance to things that we can know and that we would stay stable in those definites and not claiming more knowledge than we should claim. Thank you again. In your son's name, amen. I think they're applauding. <laughs> again, again. They didn't applaud much.